Well, good morning. Ponder the path of your feet. This morning, we're going to do some pondering out of Proverbs. And uh, this morning, the theme is we've been going through the book of Proverbs. We've been grabbing prominent themes throughout the book. And this morning is proverbial love, proverbial love. The challenge is, is that we just read some verses and love wasn't mentioned at all. So you might be thinking either he's got the theme wrong or they used the wrong verses and it's like, no, actually we're going to have to ponder exactly how these fit and how these play out in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs itself is not the normal book you would choose to talk about love. So if we were going to take a book out of the Bible, we would probably go to the New Testament and we would grab the Gospel of John or the letters from John because those are all about love and they show up everywhere, maybe even Romans. But even if we're going to do Old Testament and Solomon, we would take the Song of Solomon because that's all about love. In fact, it's usually censored in most churches. You can't even go into that, ver- that chapter or that book. But it's, it's like Proverbs isn't normally the, the book that we would think of that this is all about love. But as we get into it, we're going to find that there is some proverbial love played out and it's, it's going to be there, but again, not as obvious. In the New Testament, there are four different definitions for love and it's, it's brotherly love, uh, phileos and eros that I won't even talk about here and then surge and then you have agape and we have all these different definitions and the Hebrew only has two. I said one in the first and then somebody here that's a Hebrew scholar came up and said, no, there's another one. So I'm going to go home and study that later. Does anybody know that one? I'm not even going to ask you to raise your hand because I don't want to know. The point of it is this, that we think of love as a New Testament idea. And in the Old Testament, we're not necessarily overwhelmed by how love shows up. And yet tonight, or this morning, we're going to see it play out here. And the concept is, is that as we do it, this proverbial love is going to sneak up on us. It's not the type of thing that is just there on the surface. Proverbs is so often known as just this random collection of good sayings, wise sayings, and then somebody just stuck them together and handed them to us. Well, it's not. It's actually, if we remember, Solomon actually prayed for wisdom and God granted it to him and he actually put it together. So many times you read it and you're thinking, well, I could have put these together. That means we're not digging deep enough to understand exactly what is happening there. But this idea of random sayings, we are actually over the next few weeks, and they'll start showing up this week out around the campus, is we're going to be putting up some chalkboards, and it's going to be asking you for wisdom. And that wisdom that maybe a grandparent gave you, maybe a parent, maybe a friend, maybe it was something you read or learned in school, but there's been one bit of wisdom that's guided you in life. And we're going to ask you to go to one of those chalkboards and to write it down. And if you come up and it's covered with other sayings, then erase those and write yours down. Read what those others say. And if it's your wife that just put it on there, read it longer before you erase it, that type of thing. But we're, we're recognizing that there is collective wisdom in all of us that if we just simply look at this journey we're on, we've each had lessons and experiences and things that we've learned along the way. And so we're gonna be providing that exercise just as a way for us to share that common wisdom that we all have gained throughout life and to share it with each other. 
Well, Proverbs, again, isn't just a collection. Instead, it is an instruction manual that this is a guidebook for how to live life well. And if we pay attention to it, we actually live our life in a beautiful way that is noticed by others. They stop and say, there's something different about these people. And they can't quite put their finger on it, but it's this. It's that we lived according to the truth that is found in scripture and that especially as we look at it today, there's some principles that are laid out that we would do well, that our life would be just exuding beauty if we lived it according to these principles. So as we jump into this, to understand that at the core of Proverbs, Proverbs um, just unwraps these stark differences, the differences between good and evil, between, it talks about the rich and the poor, it talks about the wise and the foolish, and this morning we're going to talk a little bit about the difference of the wickedness and the righteous, and we saw that in Proverbs 4, and we'll look at it again in just a second, but as we go into that, this difference between these two is so important that what happens is we have to actually understand that stark difference as we go in to understand love and proverbial love, proverbial love. So there's a commentary series on the book of Proverbs by a gentleman by the name of Bruce Waltke. And Bruce had simply noticed this thing that we're talking about, this distinct difference between righteousness and wickedness, and how prevalent it was in Proverbs, that he stopped and said, I can't deal with it every time it shows up in a verse, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to define it in the introduction, and by putting it out in the introduction, then every time it shows up, you'll just remember that that's what we're talking about. So he laid it out this way. He said, the righteous are willing to disadvantage themselves for the advantage of the community, and the wicked will disadvantage the community for their own advantage. This is one of those definitions that's worth writing down. So if you got a pen or paper or something like that, write it down. We're gonna cover it a couple more times, but this idea and this logic is going to permeate how you probably think through scripture from now on out. That is, we look at this idea, the concept that the righteous is one who disadvantages himself for the advantage of the community, whereas the wicked will disadvantage the community for the advantage of self. That little difference right there plays out in life all the time. If we think about a firefighter, a firefighter will disadvantage himself for the advantage of the community. We might have an apartment complex burning and he's gonna rush through the flames to do what he can to save children that are in the apartment building. That's righteousness lived out. We can say the same thing about police officers, about soldiers and Congressional Medal of Honor winners because they disadvantage themselves for the advantage of the community. Even moms, moms do this well. They disadvantage themselves for the advantage of their family, of our community. Now, the flip side is, is that when we look at wickedness, it also has some illustrations. We can think of like, say, a bank robber. A bank robber goes into the bank and he's stealing all of our money. He's disadvantaging us for his own advantage. And we could say the same about someone who lies or a a rapist, or or if you're getting on the freeway and on the on-ramp and somebody goes down the shoulder and cuts in front of everybody and cuts in, that's wickedness. They're disadvantaging all of us for their own advantage. And you feel it, don't you? 
Don't you feel it? You look at it and you watch it, and that's not right. That's wicked. Oh, what a wicked person. That's this definition played out, and it plays out all throughout life, that the righteous are willing to disadvantage themselves for the advantage of the community, while the wicked will disadvantage the community for their own advantage. The problem is, is it sits up there on the shelf as this really high-gloss definition. The problem with it is, is that we do it all the time, and it doesn't feel quite so wicked when we do it. Now, I don't know about you, because you're probably better than I am, most likely, but I find myself all throughout the day making choices that are for my benefit, that are for my advantage. And I look out for those things of what will serve me best, and I'm not often thinking about you. Rarely ever do I think about you. Some of you in the back, I can't even see from here. I'm never gonna think about you. Here's the deal, is that when we evaluate any motive we make throughout the day, the question is just to simply do the dividing line. If we take this aisle as the center dividing line and we put all the wicked on this side, my wife's sitting on this side, and all the righteous are over here, that as we go throughout the day, it's easy to define somebody who's just really, really wicked. We can see that. And people that are really, really righteous, we can see that. But along the way, these little decisions we make and the motivations that drive us, if we just simply lay out this definition, it starts to lay out things differently. The choices that we make, the smallest choices. So as we dive into this passage, we're going to use that definition as a bit of just a foundation for where we go. So I'm from Seattle, I just moved here um, about a month ago, and in the process of coming here, we're, from being in Seattle, we worked at Seattle's Union Gospel Mission, and one of the things that the mission does up there is that it works in areas of hunger as well as homelessness and addiction and things like that. And the hunger issue, one day I'm having a conversation with some of our staff about hunger because we'd made it a major theme and I was questioning whether it should be a major theme that the mission worked on because I was thinking, you know what, really there's food everywhere. Does, does, is there anybody that's actually going hungry today? I mean, you can get meals everywhere. There's after-school programs, there's in-school programs, there's food banks, there's meal programs, there's, there's all kinds of feeding stuff going on. And I questioned whether we needed to address hunger because hunger seemed like everybody was addressing hunger and food was everywhere. And one of my staff said, Jeff, um, I got to tell you a story that just happened a couple days ago. Um, our staff at the mission, in order to be able to, to meet the needs in the community, some of the schools had limited budgets, and so they would cut some of the, the athletics and other programs unless they could get a coach or somebody to work with the kids. So we would send our staff into the public schools to be coaches with all the kids. And so one of the staff that brings this up, his name's Bobby, he's a friend of mine, and Bobby is a basketball coach for one of these local schools, one of the local high schools. And so Bobby is watching his basketball team, and as he's watching his team, one of his best athletes, a gentle young man by the name of Kevin, he's watching Kevin, and Kevin is not acting his best. He's not playing well. He's not even really putting himself into the game. If everybody's sprinting down the court, Kevin's just kind of trotting, and then when he gets about halfway, he waits till the ball comes back the other way. And Bobby's watching him play and watching him through practice, and he's like, Kevin's just not in it. So finally he pulls Kevin over and he says, Kevin, what's, uh, what's going on? You just don't seem like you're in it today. 
And Kevin says, oh, I'm sorry, coach, I, I just haven't eaten. And he's like, what do you mean you haven't eaten? Like, you haven't had lunch? And he's like, no, I haven't eaten in three days. And Bobby's like, what? And he says, yeah, there's no food in the house and schedules and just nothing. And so Bobby's like, come on, jump in the car. And so they drive down to McDonald's. And at this point, Bobby realizes he doesn't have his wallet or any money. So they pull up to McDonald's and he's like, he's digging through the, the car and he finds four quarters. He gives him the four quarters. So he's got a dollar and McDonald's has a, a dollar menu. And so he gives him the four quarters and says, here, go get something. So Kevin goes inside, but there's tax. So it's not, a dollar's not enough. And so at that point, as he goes in, he starts, and Kevin, being a kid that's pretty much grown up on the street, immediately goes to the, the people that are sitting in the restaurant eating their meals, and he begins to work the crowd and tells this story, and Bobby's watching from the outside, as Kevin panhandles basically in McDonald's to get enough money for tax to be able to get this dollar menu item. He goes up and he buys a four-piece chicken McNuggets and then he goes out to the car and the first thing he does is he pops it open and he offers it to Bobby and says, here, Bobby. And Bobby's looking at him like, here's a kid who hasn't eaten in three days and the first thing he does is he offers one to me. And he thinks to himself, no, Kevin, that's all for you. And then Kevin pulls out a napkin. He scoops up two of the nuggets and puts them in his pocket before he starts eating one of the others. And Bobby kind of laughs at him. He says, are you saving those for later? And he goes, no, my brother and my sister haven't eaten either. Now I'm listening to that story. And in this context, in this definition, is Kevin sitting on this side with the wicked or is Kevin sitting on this side with the righteous? The disadvantage himself for the advantage of the community or did he disadvantage the community for his own advantage? And in this particular case, this definition starts playing out of what it looks like when we live with this playing out in our lives. So this idea of what happens in Proverbs 4 is exactly that. So if you've got your Bibles, open to Proverbs 4.10. Hear, my son, and accept my words, that the years of your life may be many. I have taught you the way of wisdom. I have led you in the paths of uprightness. Remember, we're supposed to ponder our paths. I have led you in the path of uprightness. When you walk, your step will not be hampered, and if you run, you will not stumble. Keep hold of instruction. Do not let go. Guard her, for she is your life. Do not enter the path of the wicked. So this is the other path. Do not enter the path of the wicked, and do not walk in in the way of the evil. Avoid it. Do not go on it. Turn away from it and pass on. And listen to this with that definition in mind. For they cannot sleep unless they've done wrong. They are robbed of sleep unless they've made someone stumble. That this is the definition played out. One path is for good. The other path is for wickedness. It goes on. For they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. But the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness They do not know over what they stumble. My son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart, for they are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. So if we're thinking about advantage for the community, 
It's just given us a hint of where to find it. That in our heart, if this is true with us and we're living our life with righteousness, then from it flow the springs of life. From us, it comes out. And that's the concept. That's the core of what this whole thing is about. But love, as we mentioned, isn't completely absent in Proverbs. It does show up. So we're going to look at a couple of ways that love shows up, and then we'll come back to this principle. So if you can turn to uh, Proverbs 10, and we're going to look at the first one in Proverbs 10, 12. Proverbs 10, 12 says, hatred stirs up strife. So is that wicked or righteous? That's wicked. Hatred stirs up strife. But love covers all offenses. So right off the bat, this plays out. Hatred stirs up strife. It goes to the disadvantage of everybody else, whereas love covers all offenses. So a couple of nights ago, um, something happened at our house that that illustrates this point pretty well. Um, There has been on occasion where someone has suggested that I snore. I've never, ever seen it happen. I'm usually asleep at the time, and so I've never noticed. So it's just purely hearsay from someone else. They suggest that I might snore from time to time. Well, the other night, I fell asleep, and it was was actually our anniversary. We, um, Eugenie and I, are celebrating 37 years, and it's been a wonderful 37 years. Yeah, you can always, there should be one at least clapping. Hopefully it's my wife maybe clapping, you know, she might be thrilled. But we, we have had a wonderful marriage and we hope that that's not just past tense, we're looking for another great 37. But along the way, this problem of snoring shows up and I know I'm probably the only one here that, that wrestles with that. But normally what happens is she will reach out and shake me or, you know, give me the little elbow or just touch me lightly and say, hey, you're snoring. And then I know just simply to roll onto my side and just sleep differently. And and typically that solves it all. Well, a couple of nights ago, I wake up in the middle of the night and she's not there. She's gone. And my first thought is maybe it's the rapture and she's the righteous and she's gone. And I, no, that's probably not it. She's not that right. No, I'm kidding. But it's, but I, I know exactly what happened. I know that I was snoring, but what was different is that this particular night, she was thinking more about me than she was her. Instead of just giving me an elbow or shaking me, she was stopping and thinking about my advantage. And she looked at it and said, I'm going to just let him sleep, which meant she had to get up and go into another room where she might be able to find some sleep. That process is in, is in essence a bit of righteousness. It literally is what's talked about here when it stops and says, on the lips of him who has, un- oh, I'm sorry, wrong verse, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Now, some of you are going, well, then you at this point are causing all the strife. You're the wicked one. You might want to deal with that. All right, let's move on to the next verse. 16, chapter 16, verse six. We have a similar principle that as it comes in, love is once again mentioned by steadfast love, Proverbs 16, 6, by steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. And by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. 
This is beautiful. This is the gospel. By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity, our sins are atoned for. This is literally what Jesus did on the cross. He put himself at disadvantage for the advantage of us. And that covered all iniquity, all the sin, all of our sin. This is a beautiful example of the gospel. One more, just one page over in chapter 17. In um, 17.9, whoever covers an offense seeks love. Whoever covers an offense seeks love. And in this point, love is actually something to be pursued. And the idea here that this idea of pursuing love, this is similar to the, just like if you're seeking a future friendship, if you're like going, I want to have a relationship with this person, I'm actually gonna do these things to have this relationship. And we move closer to people when we know that we wanna have a relationship with them. That's what happens here with this is whoever covers an offense, if we decide to to overlook something that someone's done wrong to us, we overlook it because we actually are pursuing a relationship, a friendship. I love how the message uh, translates the the verse out of Proverbs or out of John that stops and says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the message, it says, the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. The word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. That it's the idea that that God overlooks the offenses and moves closer to us. And this is what happens in this principle of love playing out. That Jesus' love is so great that it actually turns us into the righteous ones. His love is so great that he finds himself at the right-hand throne of God. And we have the opportunity to have a relationship with God because of this same love. This is a beautiful thing, but both how Jesus gets there and how we get there is because it's translated as righteousness. So when we take that definition of the wicked and the righteous, we find that it's actually that love is the greatest act of righteousness there has ever been and ever will be. And that it would be good for us if we actually became pretty good at it. Verse out of Romans, just to put it in context, that I'm not making this up, stretching out of out of what it says in Proverbs, but in Romans 5, 6, it says, for while we were still weak, when we were incapable of doing it, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ took on the disadvantage so that we would have the advantage. This is love and righteousness played out. So here's the turn though. So that's all nice. That's all foundational. There's another problem in the, verse, in the, in the book of Proverbs. And this one is in chapter three. So if you still have your finger in Proverbs, go over to chapter three. And there's a couple of verses here that uh, are going to start meddling with our lives. Chapter three, verse 27 and 28. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come again. Tomorrow I will give it when you have it with you. So this idea that do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it Is it in your power to do good, righteous deeds? 
It's not a trick question, actually. This is, we're pondering our past. Do you have it in your power to love others and to do good deeds? Yeah. So you have that ability right now? You have the power to do it. And then this next verse, 28, do not say to your neighbor, go and come again. Tomorrow I'll give it to you when you have it with you. Do you have it with you now? Do you have to go home and get your love and your good deeds before you can do it? Or do you actually have it with you all the time? You see, these are pesky verses. Let's just put those away and um, we'll move on. This idea of having love inside of us, having goodness inside of us, this verse stops and says, if this is in you and because he loved us, we love because he first loved us. What that means is because he loved us, we actually have love in us. The Proverbs talked about that, that it, it's like light of dawn in the morning, but then it gets brighter and brighter until the full day. That this is something inside of us that as we are made more perfect in Christ, we actually have more of this bubbling up. We have it with us. It's in our power to do it. So this plays out in the story of the Good Samaritan. You know that story in Luke 10. In Luke 10, there's a lawyer who comes to Jesus and he asks that question. He says, what do I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, and it's a question of righteousness. That's the, you know, how do I get to be in relationship with God? How can I be good enough to be in relationship with God? How do I inherit eternal life? And Jesus asks him, what does the law command you? And he says, well, love the Lord your God, love is the answer. It's a righteousness question. And the answer is love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's actually the answer that Jesus draws out of the lawyer. And then the lawyer looks at Jesus and he says, yeah, but uh, who's my neighbor? You say I'm supposed to love my neighbor, but define the neighbor thing for me because I'm a little confused about what it means to be a neighbor. And Jesus then goes on to tell the story of the Good Samaritan. And we're not going to read the whole thing, but just draw it out really quickly that it says, desiring to justify himself, he said to Jesus, who's my neighbor? And Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jericho or from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Does that sound like the definition we're wrestling with here? That this man disadvantaged himself. He was, you know how this goes. He goes up, he sees the guy beat up, bloody on the side of the road. And he goes and he picks him up and he gets blood on himself. He puts it on the donkey. He takes it over, takes him over to the inn and he pays for that. And now he's late. And so this is, this is chapter 10 of Luke, but chapter 11 is everything that that guy had to do to make things right with his wife. Cause when he got home, his clothes were all muddy and bloody and he had already spent all the money on the inn and he was late getting home. And that's a whole other chapter. Don't go looking. It doesn't actually say that. But there's a reality to it, right? That the minute when we help somebody, it gets messy. The fact of the matter is we're telling this story today in 2018 when this story was told over 2,000 years ago. This concept that as we look at it is really fascinating. And it's what I refer to as the right of first refusal. 
This is fascinating. When some of you in real estate or business deals or contract, there's an issue of contractual law. There's an issue called right of first refusal. That if there's something that may come up for sale and you look at it and you're in a business agreement, you stop and say, I will sign this contract if, if you ever decide to sell it, I actually get first rights to it. So that's called first right of refusal. That you can, if I decide to refuse it, you can sell it to somebody else, but I get first dibs at it. I get the first shot at it. That's first right of refusal. This story is about the first right of refusal. The Good Samaritan was the third person to pass. The priest actually had first right of refusal. The one that's known for righteousness comes up, sees the man beat up on the side of the road. Does he have goodness in him? Does he have love in him? Is he capable of doing that? Yes, he is. But he passes on that first right of refusal and moves on. So does the Levite. And it's the Samaritan who gets it. So to this day, we tell his story. Had it been different, we would have not good Samaritan laws. We would have good priest laws. We wouldn't have good Samaritan hospitals. We would have good priest hospitals. That literally... People of the faith would be the ones we'd be talking about, not the Samaritans. And it's not to put him down, instead to lift him up. But this idea of how we live our life points towards God. It points towards love. It points towards him. This is played out again and again throughout scripture in a lot of different ways. So in the late 1800s, Medical science wasn't where it is now, and there's still some challenges with the disease of leprosy. But at the time, whenever somebody would contract leprosy on the South Pacific Islands, specifically in Hawaii, they would take anybody who had leprosy and they would move them out of the community and they would put them into a little village that was just for lepers on the island of Molokai. And they was out on a peninsula, separated from everywhere else, and they just simply tucked them away. And so the Catholic church took one particular priest, a man by the name of Father Damien, and they sent Father Damien to just simply be a priest to these lepers in this colony. And Father Damien moved in and the place was a little bit like animal farm. It was a mess that everybody was so concerned about their own health because they were trying to survive that nobody was taking care of the needs of the community. So the community began to descend in just a little bit of anarchy. There was trash and sewage in the streets. There were no schools. It was just a bad, bad place. And no one was well because they had concentrated everybody that was sick into this one village. So Father Damien began to clean things up and to teach them how to to just keep the water clean and how to pick up the trash. And he launched schools and he built churches and he did all kinds of things for the community and began to transform this village throughout the years. But about nine years into his stay there, because he was loving on the people, working on the people, didn't hesitate to embrace them and, and to love on them. One day he's making coffee and he's making coffee, he's boiling up the water and as he's boiling up the water, he spills some on his foot and he feels nothing. For those of you who don't know, leprosy actually begins to attack the nerve endings so that you don't feel anymore. It's not so much that the flesh itself begins to decay, but you don't know that you're injuring your flesh, and so you begin to wound it and injure it more, and then it gets infected, and you don't even know it's infected. So Father Damien, as he pours this scalding hot water on his foot, and he feels no pain, he thinks it's a fluke, so he pours it on his other foot, and sure enough, he feels no pain there either. He knows now that he has contracted leprosy. 
It goes on to consume his entire body, and within a couple of years, Father Damien is dead. He's from Belgium, and so the Belgium church is so excited by who this guy is and all of his love and how well he's made changes on this island that they literally get his body and they bring him back to Belgium and bury him in Belgium so that he could be buried in one of their churchyards. It's years later that the colony decides this just isn't right. This man transformed us and loved us so well that they asked for him back. And the church in Belgium doesn't want to give him back. And so then the village stops and says, because they've made him a saint by this time. He's now Saint Damien. And so they said, well, can we have his hand? Now, this sounds gruesome at first. Why in the world would you ask for his hand? And the village just simply responds, because that's how we reached out and touched us. That's how we felt his love was with his hand. That here's a man who saw past all the evilness, all the wickedness, all the sickness, all the disease, and he reached through whatever was wrong with them and embraced with that. And to this day, his hand is in Hawaii, his body's in Belgium. That's a disgusting story. But it's beautiful too, isn't it? And doesn't it sound a bit like Christ in the middle of this? Well, this concept of righteousness as it plays out in Proverbs, we would, be, we would just simply be wrong if we saw righteousness as anything but the most beautiful form of love. That if we didn't endeavor to live our life this way with others, of putting ourselves at disadvantage for the advantage of others. That love itself is the greatest act of righteousness there is. Um, I've, when I, I had the opportunity to come speak in February, this was before we knew we were moving to Fullerton, and, and Darren had asked me to speak on Hebrews 10, and you were going through the book of Hebrews. And in Hebrews 10, we talked about the, um, the let us passage, let us draw near, let us hold fast. And let us consider how to encourage or spur each other on to loving good deeds. You remember that? Doesn't matter if you do. There was a story that happened that particular morning as I was teaching. When we got to that, consider how to spur one another on to loving good deeds. I went through an illustration where I had you pull out your cell phones and to either call or text somebody and just say, hey, I'm thinking about you. I love you. And just to reach out to somebody that that God might put on your heart to do, to, to reach out to and to love on. And when I came back, a gentleman somewhere, and he may be sitting here now, he came up to me afterwards and he said, you know, um, when you did that thing and had us make the phone call, it had been years and years since I had last talked to my dad. We had not been on speaking terms, so years have gone by without us seeing each other or speaking. And he says, that morning I called my dad. Overlooking the offense. This is what love is. That relationship, I'd love to say, is just all perfect, but he said, hey, we're still working through it, but we're at least talking now. The relationship is beginning to heal. You see, so often what we do is we look at the difficulty part, the difficult part of reaching out to somebody else and thinking, I don't know if I want to forgive them. What they did was pretty horrific. And it's like, yeah, kind of what you did was pretty horrific. And Jesus came and moved into the neighborhood 
and put himself at disadvantage for our advantage. This concept of what it says in Proverbs 3, when it lays it out and says, um, I'm looking at six, that's why that verse isn't there. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due. You have it with you. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is your power to do it. You have the power to do it. Don't say, come tomorrow and I'll give it to you when you have it with you now. This whole principle and how it lays out should be the thing that defines us more than anything else in this community. That we are people who put ourselves at disadvantage for the advantage of others. Last verse out of Proverbs 3. Let, no, let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Don't let that love ever drift away from you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. And then you will have them with you always. Keep them with you. Take that first right of refusal. Love our community well. Learn to forgive. Learn to love. And live well. Let me pray for us. Lord, I'm so grateful for your love for the fact that you have lived righteousness and love for us so that we might have a relationship with you. Lord, I would ask that for anyone in this room this morning that desperately needs to feel your love, that they would reach out to you now. And Lord, for some of us who need to forgive someone, that you would give us that ability to reach out and forgive them. And Lord, that we might reach out to those relationships, to those in our neighborhoods, to those in our families, to those in our community and learn to disadvantage ourselves for the advantage of others so that they might see you and how we love others well. We ask these things in your name. Amen.